Welcome back to another live Friday training lecture. Today's topic is identity. What do we mean by identity? And specifically, what does it mean when Christians say we should find our identity in Christ? In the Bible, this whole notion is multifaceted. For instance, we find out that our identities are formed not only by what we say we believe, but also by what we consistently do. Though in the modern world, we tend to define our identity according to what we think, feel, and believe, oftentimes it's actually our habitual patterns, our rituals, though we might not call them that or even notice them at all, which reveal a deeper reality that is making us into who we are. And to go a step further, this ritual, habitual level, if you have eyes to see it, can become a window into the deepest level of your soul, into what really makes you, you, what you long for, what you need, and what you worship. In this lecture, I call these three levels of self creeds, deeds, and needs. I hope you enjoy. The topic for today I have called Find My Identity in Christ? Question mark. And you'll see what I mean by the question mark as we go. It's not because I think it's a bad phrase. I'll just give you that, that hint. I think it's a very good phrase. But, um, but I do want to talk about what it means. Today's topic is identity. Um, what do we mean when we use the word identity? What is identity? How is it formed and deformed? How do we know who we are, what we love, and what we worship? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I want to start with this quick Bible quiz that I have at the top of your sheet there. Um, so no cheating. In fact, don't even look down at the verse below those because that's the hint to the, to the third one. But um, here's my quiz for you. Are you ready? Okay, question number one. According to Jesus, who is the man who builds his house upon the rock? Yeah, what were you going to say, Kira? Yes, the wise man. And what makes him wise? He hears the word and does it. Yes. Okay, good job, guys. Um, okay, the second question is, according to Jesus, why do people love the darkness rather than the light? This is in his conversation with Nicodemus. He says, the light has come into the world. The people love the darkness because, and then he gives a reason. It's a pretty hard one. Anybody know? Okay, let's skip down to the third one, and then we'll come back to the second one. Um, this one is uh, um, in, uh, in James's epistle. Who is the man who looks into the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like? Anybody remember anything about that person? Nathan's got it again. James basically says, yeah, the man who looks in the mirror, yes, the hearer but not doer of the word. Yes, that's right. The man who hears the word but doesn't do it is like a man who looks in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like. Okay, so we have these three questions. The first one, according to Jesus, who is the man who builds his house upon the rock? If To me, if I recall that into my mind, and I recall, like Kira said, if I recall, it's the wise man, right? Not foolish man. But then I say, what is the wise man? Like, who is, who is the person who builds their house upon the rock? Normally, I would think like the one who believes, the one who puts their trust in Jesus, which of course is true. But it's not the way that Jesus says it, which of course is interesting. Because the way that Jesus says it is, it's the one who does what I say. That's the one who builds his house upon the rock, which is 
kind of interesting. And then to the second question, according to Jesus, why do the people love the darkness rather than the light? You would think he would say something like a belief statement there too, like because they do not believe in the one who he has sent or something like that. And he does say things like that all the time. So that would not be surprising. But what is surprising is the reason he gives. He says, the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness because their deeds were evil. It's kind of an easy phrase to ignore. Because it's like, what does that mean? But that's what he says. He says they love the darkness because their deeds were evil. And then in the James passage, like I said, you have the man who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. It's not the one who hears the word. It's the one who hears the word and then does not do it who forgets what he looks like. So in each case, can you sort of see a theme? The theme is what? It's, yeah, it's just doing things or not doing things. Actually seems to really matter in the New Testament more than sometimes we would talk about. Um, and so um, well, let's, let's just read this passage from James here. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intensely at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. I love the, the way it's translated here, which is he looks intensely at himself um, in the mirror. So you, you almost have this sort of, um, you know, uh, myth of narcissus sort of thing going on there. Where, but, but I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think it's necessarily bad to look intensely at yourself, right? That's, that's something we talk a lot about in the modern psychological age. It's like you need to dig deep into yourself. You know, you need to look intensely into yourself and figure out who you are. And so he does that, but then he goes away and he forgets what he looks like, which sounds, I don't know, it sounds pretty familiar. It sounds like what a lot of us do when we try to, let's say you go to counseling, you're like, yes, I've worked out all these problems. You have this amazing conversation with a friend or you hear this amazing sermon and you're looking deep inside yourself and you're like, that's what's going on with me. And then you just go on with your life and you just forget all about whatever that intense moment of introspection you just had. And so the way James puts those things together is what's happening is, you are looking at something true. You are a hearer of the word. You are hearing or seeing in the truth because he's, he's mixing the metaphors of hearing and seeing. But then you're going away and you're not doing it. And so now you are the type of person who cannot hold on to that first vision that you had. And so the point, we know that beliefs can drive actions. But what if actions can also drive beliefs? So a lot of what we have been told growing up is that um, what we do is sort of the fruit comes out of what we believe. There's an internal reality. And then that bears itself out into your life in the way that you act. But in these passages, you see that something like the opposite might also be true. That what you do might actually affect what you believe. Which is extremely uncomfortably clear in the passage where Jesus says they love the darkness because their deeds were evil. He, in, in a weird way, he says the causation for their love is something outside. Rather than saying they love something and therefore they do something evil, he says they do something evil and therefore they love. It's kind of a scary way to put it. And it's not the only truth, right? Because the other, the other way around is also true. But I bring that up at the beginning just to say that the Bible's quite a, quite a crazy book, right? I mean, it, it says sometimes the opposite of what you think might be true. And the opposite of that might also be true because the Bible says the opposite of itself. Because the Bible 
is the unification of opposites um, and, and in a way that makes them both fully true in the deepest sense. Um, okay, so as an intro to this morning, um, I've written these two sayings. Uh, they're two sayings that may have been formative in your faith. They were certainly formative in my faith. And the first one I already brought up, which is kind of the title of, of today, which is, you have to find your identity in Christ, or you have to put your identity in Christ, you might say. And the second one is, Christianity is not about religion, it's about relationship. For me, both of these were, were pretty helpful uh, in understanding how to live Christianity from, from a pretty young age. Um, that, in the first case, Christianity was more than just like something I believed or said I believed or something that I just did good things and called myself a Christian because I did good things. No, it had to be my entire identity was found in Christ if I was going to be a Christian. And then, and then in the second case, it was learning that what Christianity was was a relationship with God, not just a kind of ritualistic practice or something like that. Um, and these sayings are helpful and true, but they're also what I call low-resolution truths, which means that um, from afar, when you look at them, you can see something very clearly. But as you zoom into it and you start asking the definitions of what exactly does that mean, you can't see very much as clearly as you could before. Does that make sense? Kind of like, a, like an old TV or something like that that's made, that only is made up of like 20 pixels or something. It's like, okay, I can sort of see what's going on there, but I can't see it very well. And that's what happens. I mean, that's what most sayings are like. That's what almost all sort of maxims are. It's like something that you can kind of grab onto and be like, that's helpful. But then over time, you can't like hang your whole life on any one saying, right? Because sayings generally are just sentences. They're, they're low resolution. They help you get to one point, but they don't tell you the whole truth. For example, what does identity even mean? I mean, if I'm going to find my identity in Christ, I, I should probably figure out what identity even is. Or I might even be mistaken about who Christ is. So now I've found my whole identity in Christ, but I don't know who Christ is exactly. And so you have to, to kind of zoom in in a way and, and hopefully find um, something that's higher resolution. In the second saying, the question I think hangs on what is religion? I mean, of course, if you just begin by assuming that the word religion is always bad, then yes, you should run away from it and run towards something like relationship because it's easy to assume that relationship is always good, um, especially a good relationship. Um, and again, I think this is pointing out something that's really true but also kind of low resolution because as you zoom in on it, you're like, but is religion always bad? What does the word religion even mean? Kind of like the word identity. What do we mean by sayings like this when we say not religion, but relationship? Okay, so that's um, kind of an introduction to what I want to get into today, um, mostly revolving around the word identity. Okay, so what is identity? Um, what makes you, you? We kind of hinted at the modern notion of how to answer this question, and it is being always updated, in case you haven't noticed, there's just battles all over the place about what makes you, you, about what makes identity as such what it is. Um, I think the modern notion has two main areas that it focuses on. One I call personal, which is you are who you say you are, you know, even down to... Um, uh, to being able to trump your own biology, for example. You know, it's like it's, your body might say one thing, but if you say another, you can decide what you are. And so that's how, that's how much we believe in this, is that you would, we would even trump the visible with the invisible because you have said that you are that. 
um, which is a kind of, I mean, it's a kind of religious um, way of treating identity, but that the, that the modern world um, does. Um, I guess it's good to say, it's not just the progressive side that does that, right? You, obviously, I'm, there I'm sort of using the example of you are whatever gender you think you are, or whatever. But that also happens on the religious side, on the conservative side, which is kind of like, I'm a Christian. Like, before all else, I'm a Christian. It's kind of like, really? You know, you look at your life. It's like, no, the invisible part, the fact that I say that I'm a Christian is more important to me than whatever I'm doing with my life, right? And so that's a, that's a similar kind of doubling down on this invisible property of who I say that I am versus the reality of whatever is going on in my life. Um, and then the second um, modern notion, I think, is, is, more, of, is more of the visible, the, the sociological, the biological. Um, so that notion is also really prevalent, too. It's like, you know, you can say, well, I believe this, this, and this. And then, you know, on the progressive side, they just be like, yeah, but you're white. I can tell you what demographics you're in, and I can tell you a whole bunch about yourself just by the visible demographics that I'm putting you in. The modern world can basically like sociologize you and say you are in these demographics, and we know these things about these demographics, and therefore um, X, Y, and Z, right? And so those tend to be the two ways I think, maybe from like I said, like from from within or from without, that um, that modern notions of identity come from. Um, but the biblical picture is. <laughs> it's a lot more complicated than that because what you find in the Bible is one, no like clear reference to identity as such, but you find tons of talk about self and who you are because um, of course the word self is, is really what we mean by identity. And what you find there is that you are just lots of things. You are tons of things. You are who you say you are, just as we were talking about before, who you feel and think and believe that you are. But also, you are who you act out, who others see you as, who your patterns of being show you to be. But also, you are who you are. It doesn't even matter who you say you are. You just There's a givenness to you that just is. Um, and that can be for better and worse, right? Um, you can say, I'm a Christian or whatever, but it's kind of like, yeah, but like you are who you are. Like look, look at all these other elements of your life. But it, it's also for better in the way that Jay was saying, which is that like sometimes it doesn't matter how you feel. You are a child of God. You know, th th this, is, this is a reality that is deeper than something that you can even, um, you know, claim or manage. This gets to what we were talking about at, at near the end of this past week where I was saying, you know, we complain about God being invisible but we forget the fact that most of us is invisible to each other as well. You know, that when you date someone, you are dating an invisible person as much as, if not more than the visible person that you are dating. And you find that out the more that you're dating because a little bit more of them becomes visible to you and a little bit more and a little bit more, right? And so if you're being honest, it's not just God that you should complain, you know, why can I not see you and feel you? Um, it is also all of us. And you could also say the same about yourself, you know. And and the psalmist says this to himself. Like, you know, the psalmist say this all the time. Like, why? Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? You know, it's, he's talking to himself, and he cannot understand what's going on inside himself because himself is invisible to himself, right? And so that's kind of what I was getting at when I was talking about the self being being somewhat invisible. And this is why... You can want a thing and also want almost the exact opposite of the thing simultaneously. This is why our desires war against each other. You know, Paul talks about this in Romans. Um, you know, I, I do what I do not want to do. Um, how is that possible? How is it possible that you can do what you do not want to do? Well, it's possible because you are a battle of wills. Like within you, there's all these invisible desires that fight with each other. And you can very sincerely want one thing and the opposite of that thing at the same time. It may not seem that that's true. 
And you may want to like stand up and be like, no, I want this. But reality will, the realities that are deep, deeper down in you will reveal to you that you also want something else at the same time. They just will. That's, that's the way our wills work. They are a battle. And it's not just Paul who talks about this. Amazingly, modern psychology like, has just proven this more and more and more, especially beginning with Freud. He basically just said, like, look, you're just, you are just this iceberg. Like, you, th you think that you are just whatever you consciously think that you are, but there's this thing called the subconscious, which is mostly what you are, right? And, uh, and that's not far off. I mean, he went in weird directions with it. And so we continue to sort of figure out what that means from a psychological level. But the Bible was saying this for thousands of years before Freud did. In other words, you are an iceberg. Um, and I know this is kind of a cliche image, but it's a great image for when you're talking about identity. Most of you is below the surface of your consciousness. It just is. And so if you look at that, uh, that diagram that I gave you, um, and we'll get into the, to the terms that I use there in a moment. But you can sort of just see with the iceberg, you know, everybody knows that like a huge percentage of the iceberg is below the surface. And so if you see the waters or you see the above the surface part as being what you are conscious of, there you are. There's yourself. <laughs> you are con the, the part of yourself that you are conscious of is generally speaking a small part of yourself. I mean, there are things just speaking on kind of a, a biological or even evolutionary level. There are things in you that are there because of your great, 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 great grandfather's grandmother or something like that, you know? And they, they are a part of you. They're a part of who you are. And you don't know that person. I mean, you, don't, you might not even know anything. You might have been adopted and you don't even know anyone who has ever been in your family ever, but they're still there. They're still there. And so also is the way that your actual father and your mother raised you. But even those things, even though you know your mother and father and you can call them right now on the phone maybe, even those things you still don't really know. You still don't really know how those things, the way that they have raised you, affect you. And so there's tons of you that's below the surface. So the Bible often speaks of this reality of the deeper parts of yourself as spirit. And I'm not trying to like... Uh, perfectly define what spirit uh, in the Bible means or soul. Sometimes spirit and soul are interchangeable in the Bible. And so I'm not trying to even say that there are these two totally separate things that you can give an obvious definition to. But the way that spirit is often used in the Bible, which also means like wind or breath or whatever, is the thing that is most real and also most unknown to you. And so the wind is a great example because, you know, like we talked about, the word spirit in, in Hebrew means wind or breath. And so if you're in the pre-meteorological age, the wind is very real to you, but you also have no freaking clue what it is, right? I mean, because it, it will blow down your house, like in the example of, you know, the, the fool who builds his house upon the sand, and yet you do not know, like Jesus says, where it is coming from or where it is going, and you cannot see it. I mean, you can see the effects of it, but you cannot see it. And so it is with the Spirit. So it is with the Spirit of God, because we see the effects of what he has done, but we cannot see him. But so it is, the Bible says, that you have a spirit, that there is a part of you that is very much like that, that is, is maybe the most real part of you, the thing that makes you you, and yet is also the most unknown. I just think that's a great phrase, the most real and unknown. It's, it's just so scary. It's like, oh, okay, it's the thing that matters most and also the thing I know the least. But that's kind of true of each one of us, right? It's like, why do you not, why do we believe that we should not murder each other? Is it because of, of the way that the cells in your body are composed? Is it because of anything that you can actually see? 
know, why do I even believe that Lucas is Lucas? Is it simply because of the way, you know, the, the fact that he has bigger arms than me, bigger legs than me, he's generally just more athletic than me? No, I mean, that, those things are true, but that's not why I believe that. The reason we even call him Lucas is because of some kind of spiritual reality. Like, Lucas is spiritual. Like, the reason that all of you have different names is because there's something about you that is not simply connected to the cellular structure of who you are. And so it's that real, and yet that unknown to us. And we have to deal with these kinds of things when we get into what we mean by identity. And to remind you of how I always say that like, life is the, that Christianity is the marriage of heaven and earth, I'm not trying to sort of undo the earthly part of that, right? So part of you is the fact that Lucas has bigger muscles than me. That actually does matter, especially if we got in a fight. Then it would really matter. But it's not the only thing that matters, right? And so you don't want to go all in for one way or the other. Like, you know, I can see exactly what my identity is. But you also wouldn't want to go all in for like, my spiritual identity is exactly what it is. And we're going to get into that in a second. Because these two, the rubber will meet the road. Because you are dust and breath. You can pretend that you're only breath and you can pretend that you're only dust. But man, you are both. And, when, and, the, way, and the place that they meet and the way that they meet will define your identity in really important ways. Um, so it leads to this question. If you are a spiritual being, if you are an iceberg, and most of you is unknown to you, how on earth do you find your identity in Christ? That's why James's image is so great because he is he's using the image of someone looking in the mirror, knowing that almost all of the time you're not looking in the mirror, especially then. I mean, there were like hardly mirrors around ever, right? And so it's like you have this one opportunity. It's like, look in the mirror, you know, um, which is kind of like you get to look at yourself. But most of the time you don't get to, it's not like you just have walk around with clarity about who you are. And so that's why he's posing this problem, right? Because he's saying, if you know that most of the time you don't get to just like sit around and like, like look into your own self and see who you are, then how will you know who you are? How will you know? All right, so I'd like to read these three scripture passages which all have to do with identity. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay. you read that one more time? Yeah. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against one another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also able to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the bond, which is the perfect bond of unity. Okay, so notice in that passage, the word self is used quite a bit. It's saying, how do, you, how do you find yourself, in a sense, when you put off these things? 
and you put on these things. You put on a new self. You put off an old self, and you put on a new self. Okay, and um, pardon. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us with our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Okay, so we ended with like the most funky passage, you know, right? Because that's where, that's where Paul talks about when you don't know what to pray, you should just let the inside of you grow. It's, it's cool because... The vision that he that he is painting there is of the symphony because he's saying all creation is groaning. So so that's that's one fact. All creation is groaning for the redemption for the, of all things for the reconciliation of, of creation to God. But then he's saying when you don't know what to pray, you should let the insides of yourself grow. Why? Because you are a part of creation. Because there is a part of you that is already groaning. That is. That is joining the symphony of creation and saying, you know, even if you don't know you are, right? I mean, look at any desperate person on the street and you're like, man, I just, I wish that person could just know Jesus. Or but some part of them, the deepest part of them maybe is just like, ah, like the redemption of all, that's what I want because, because that's how we were made. We were made to groan for the redemption of all things. And yet, and at the same time, he's saying the spirit of God actually comes and speaks within you. So it's not just sort of your natural self like creation itself, but also God in you that groans through you. Um, to, to speak from God to God. Each of these three passages, what, what are the differences that you see in the way that identity is talked about? So I'll kind of give them slightly harder lines. So in, in Romans 10, we have these three passages. In the Romans 10 passage, you have this very straightforward, you know, maybe it's been quoted, it's a kind of evangelical way of talking about faith, which is if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, you know, then you will be saved. And so you have this, it is outward in the sense that you can you can tell, you can confess it. It is it is conscious, it is above the iceberg type of language, right? Except when he says believe in your heart, that obviously that goes to the deepest level. But it's the kind of language that we use often, which is believe in Christ and you will be saved. You know, come with me, say this prayer with me, and you will be saved. And I'm not, you can tell I'm not cheapening that because that is what Paul says. <laughs> this is biblical, this is right, and this is what we ought to do. And in so doing, in confessing that Jesus is Christ and calling ourselves Christians and saying, I want this, I believe this, I will live this way, we become Christians. We, our identity changes. It defines our identity, but only on one level. So then in the second passage, he's talking to Christians, to people who have already confessed with their mouth and said that they believe with their hearts you know, um, that, that Christ is Lord. And then he's saying, well, now, now this has to be played out in your life or else it will not be true of you, 
And so you have been saved. Now be saved, I guess, in a sense, is what he's saying. Like you, you have been justified. Now go and do the thing that you are. Go and become the thing that you are. And the way that he talks about that is by putting off the old. He's insisting that they put off these old practices. He's talking to a church. He's not like talking to the world. He's not moralizing to a bunch of pagans, you know, in, um, in the Greco-Roman world. He's talking to the community of believers and saying, put off these things and put on these things. And then your identity will have changed. Um, okay, and then in the third passage, you you have this, this much more mysterious way of talking about identity, which is, he's, he, in a way, it's, it's ineffable. You guys know what I mean by that? It's without words. And, and Paul even says that. He says, all of creation is groaning, and then you yourself don't even have words for what this thing is that you long for, which is to be found in Christ, for the Spirit of God to live in you and to cry out to God through you. That is something that is so deep within you that there's, there, you can't make a list of doctrines that will... You know, that will summarize it. I can't even tell you, like, put off this and do that. It's even deeper than that. It's just let your spirit commune with God's spirit. So to me, these are three different and true levels of the self, of identity, of how to relate with God. Um, and, you, and you see these, not just in these three passages, but throughout Scripture, it's always calling you to... Um, to, to bring these kind of disparate parts of yourself, the deepest parts of yourself, what you're actually doing with your life and what you believe in your mind and in your heart and with your mouth and to put them together into this one symphony that is you. And what happens is that oftentimes we're just not a symphony. It's just like discordant notes over here. They like say one thing and do another and feel another. So I call this three levels of identity or three levels of self. And if you look at the, um, yeah, the graphic on your, on your other sheet, you have, I've kind of given it in two different formats. One is in concentric circles, and the other is with the iceberg. So you, whatever way you picture it better, that's fine. Um, but basically, what I'm saying is there are three levels to our identity. And I mean, I'm not saying this in some scientific sense, as though I actually know what the self is made up of. Nobody does. But when you read Scripture, what you see, at least, is that Scripture, and Jesus in particular, is engaging us on different levels of ourself at the same time. And so I call the first level um, the surface level, or creeds. And um, this is the level that is, in the iceberg, conscious to you. And it is what you feel and think and believe. And so this is kind of offensive to the modern world that I would make this the surface level of the iceberg because for a lot of people, it just is the whole dang thing. <laughs> what I feel and what I think and what I believe, I mean, I literally call it creeds. So I'm saying to you, what you believe even, at least on the creedal level, what you can say, what you can confess your, with your mouth that you believe is still on this surface level. But let me be clear. I don't mean that it's superficial or false then. Because it is you. It is, like what is visible to you, of you, is really, really important. It's like it's most of what you have to deal with most of the time is like what you actually think and believe and feel about things. Even when you go to your counselor and you talk to them, most of the time you are just talking about the things that are already conscious to you. If they're a really good counselor, what they'll do is they'll make you dig deeper into things that you didn't even know you believed. And we'll get, you know, we'll get more to what that is as we go. But for the most part, 
this creedal level, even the things that you say you most deeply hold to be true, your deepest convictions, because you can say that you most hold them to be true, are still on this first surface level. You see what I mean? They're on the top of the iceberg. And then there's the next level down, which I call the ritual level. So if the first level is creeds, the second level I call deeds. It's kind of offensive because I don't just mean like what you do. I'm not trying to paint some sort of works righteousness you know, theology where it's like it's deeper that you obey certain commands than it is what you believe. That's probably the opposite of what you've been taught growing up. And that's part of the reason that I'm showing you this is because the Bible does kind of sometimes say that. The Bible does say it really matters what you do. And sometimes we forget that because we've been told our whole lives like it just matters what you believe, not what you do. But like I showed you in, those, in my little Bible quiz at the beginning, the man who builds his house on the rock is the man who does what Jesus says, not just the man who believes that Jesus exists or that Jesus died for, for their sins. And so I think in a lot of Jesus' teaching, he actually sees the, the, the deeds part of you as deeper than the creeds part. And I'll, I'll try to justify my reasoning for this in a moment. But again, what I mean by deeds is not just what you do, it's what you sustainably do. It's the habits that make you who you are. And now it might ring a bell if you listen to the James K. Smith um, talk about redeeming ritual. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about, is the things that you continually do sometimes define you more than the things you say you believe. And so this deeds part of you, this is the liminal world between what you want and what you need. Or you might say, it's between what we want and what we most deeply want. So if we, which we'll get to in a minute, your needs, the deepest part of you, what you most deeply want, is always there, and it is always a driving force. And then on the surface, you're saying, I want this. But what I'm saying is, what if there's a level between those two things, between what you most deeply desire and what on the surface you think you want and what you think you need? And that level oftentimes will be found in your rituals. It will actually be played out in the way you're living your life. You know, I can say I'm a Christian and I go to God, you know, because he's the one who can save me from my suffering. But then before bed, I'm going to watch Netflix because that is the thing that helps me to go to sleep and saves me from the suffering of my anxiety, right? It helps me to forget. And so that ritual tells me something. I'm not saying that that makes me a total hypocrite or whatever, but it does, it should tell me something about what I believe. And maybe something deep. So ritual patterns, because they are regular and unconscious, reveal a deeper level of desire and belief. This is the part of you that commits, not just that says it commits, but commits, not by what you say, but by what you actually do. These patterns of behavior and thought are so naturally ingrained that they can be hard to see without great effort and help. This is, again, why we get counseling or why we have spiritual authorities, because you can't always see what you are doing with your ritual self, because it's below the iceberg. That's why in the diagram, deeds are below the iceberg. I know that's a weird thing to say, because you would normally think the way we would put this is, is in the reverse, right? That what's on top of the iceberg is what you do, and what's below the surface is what you believe. But I'm saying a lot of life is the opposite. You're actually pretty aware of what you think you believe. You're not actually that aware of what you're regularly doing. Other people are. <laughs> that's the irony, right? And that's why the world is so full of anger against hypocrisy. Because all of us are this. We're people who say we believe and want certain things. 
And we're people who do other things and don't notice that we are the people that do those other things. But by deeds, I don't just mean outward deeds, right? So a bunch of the rituals that run your life are your rituals of thought. So you might have like a mantra when you wake up in the morning that you're, that you're aware of, which is like, you know, I am good enough and I am okay and I am enough. But then the ritual that is beneath the surface, of the thing you're actually doing is telling yourself, you know, you're never going to be enough, you're never going to be enough, you're never going to be enough, right? And so on that deeds level is also thoughts. It's not just literally things you do with your hands and your feet. It's, it, you also have, and that's why deeds is maybe not the great word, the greatest word, but it rhymes with creeds and needs. I mean, come on. That's <laughs> And so uh, it is a ritual, though. And so you have rituals of thought in the same way that you do um, of, you know, your, your doings. It's like all, it's all like purge itself. Like, I know it's three levels of self. Yeah, these are, all, these are all yourself. And it's okay if you don't fully get it. I mean, I'm sharing something super counterintuitive. A lot, and a lot of people would disagree with this. And so you can also disagree with it. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to show you why I think the Bible pushes us towards this type of understanding in a moment. Um, and mostly it's because like the ritual level is like a huge part of what makes us who we are. That's why the, the whole Bible was like really concerned about idolatry and we basically don't even use the word, except in like really religious ways to talk about your thoughts. Like don't idolize that, idolize this. But like in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it was like, no, people were physically going places and like burning things so that things would happen. And if you imagine that you're not doing that with Netflix, you are mistaken. You are actually mistaken. So that's, that's what I'm trying to reveal, right? Is that that's not a thought. It's not like, I have this conscious thought that like Netflix will help me sleep. I mean, maybe you do. But what you're doing with your life is you're saying, I need this thing. And it's not always bad things. A lot of times it's a good thing. I like Netflix. Okay, so let me give you an example of, of how this deeds level might play out for you how you might not see the deepest levels of yourself. So let's say that I have a scheduled date with my wife every Tuesday night at 6 o'clock. And every Tuesday night at 6 o'clock, I show up at 6.15. I mean, it just happens over and over and over and over again. Okay, so let's say this happens for like the 10th time in a row. And my wife is really upset. And I say, and, I, and then I'm really upset because I see that she's upset and, I, and I'm like looking at my watch and the whole time I've been like, you know, whatever, I, just so frustrated that I'm getting there at 6.15 again. I know that I'm late. And so I get there and I say, I'm so sorry. I am so, I know I've done this, you know, like, and, and I'm just so sorry for it. Like, I don't know why I keep doing this, but like, please know that I'm really sorry. And then her response is, no, you're not. Which one of us is more right? I think it would be her in that particular case, right? Let's say I'm crying, though. Like, let's say I really mean it. And I'm not just, like, trying to fake cry. Like, I'm actually, like, really tearing up and sad about how late I am. Then who's right? Still her. But those are my feelings. She doesn't know my feelings. She doesn't know how sorry I am. But what does she know? 15 minutes late for the 10th time in a row. She might not know why, but she knows that there's something more important to me than her in that moment. That's the sort of thing I'm getting at, right? Is that you can deeply feel something. You can deeply want something. You can deeply believe. I mean, if you quiz me, I'm going to say every time, be on time for the date with your wife. That is a belief that I have. 
all of you should do, you know, and with or with your, and or with your husband, whatever. But the point is, this is deeper than that. This is what I actually do, and it, what it reveals is probably something that I love. I mean, and I don't know what that thing is, but it's there, and that's why it bothers her, and that's why she's right when she says, "No, you're not." So you can imagine a more intense scenario where it's, and this is a scenario that. People run into where you find out that there's been, you know, some kind of long-term affair or something like that. And then once it all comes out, the person is like, I'm so sorry. I mean, this happens all the time with pastors all over the place or whatever. You know, it's in the news and the person's like, I'm so sorry. I've let these people down. I've let these people down. You know, and then the the immediate response from people who are not immediately affected by the thing is like, well, thanks for saying you're sorry. You know, we can begin to move on. But it's like, come on, you know. Which is more true? The thing that you've been, which is more true of you, even right this moment? The thing that you've been doing for 10 years that nobody knew about until this moment? Or the thing that you say you feel and believe in this moment? So I always come back to this passage in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that we quoted at the beginning of the morning. The light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness. Why? Because their deeds were evil. It begins to make more sense. It maybe makes more sense why I use the word deeds, not just for the rhyme. Because that's the word he uses there. He says, how do I know that they don't want the light, even when the light shines? And you would think everybody would want out of the darkness. How do I know that they don't want out of the darkness? It's because of their deeds. It's because of the rituals that they already have that would make them prefer the darkness to the light, even if they might say, oh, the light is gone. Oh, you're the Messiah? I definitely want the Messiah. I mean, who doesn't say, on the surface level, who doesn't say, I want the light? Everyone wants the light. But on the ritual level, you can imagine all kinds of reasons that you would not want the light. You would not want to be exposed by the light because you want to keep doing what you're doing. Okay, so then we get to the, to the needs level, um, which is the most basic level, which is the hardest to talk about because it's what you need, it's what you long for, it's what you were made for. A lot of times there just aren't even words for this level of yourself because you don't know what you need. I mean, and I think Christians have put it better than anyone else, which is at the bottom of yourself is a void that only God can fill. You know, that like, like the Augustine quote, that um, we were made for you, God, and you know, our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. That there is some part of us that cannot, some need that cannot be met, some want that cannot be met, except by something that is God-shaped. And not just God-shaped, but all of the good things that God has given shaped. So you have needs for intimacy. You have, you have needs for purpose. You have a need for sustenance in every sense of the word. And these are things you cannot escape. And they will drive you know, from the, from the bottom of the iceberg up, they will, they will send their little signals and it will make you do things like watch Netflix at night and you'll be like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know where this is coming from because it's deeper than just the ritual. It's not, it's, you're not watching Netflix every night so that you can go to sleep simply because it's like, well, I've got this ritual and it makes me feel really comfortable. No, it's probably being driven from something really deep in yourself that ultimately is probably good because God made you. And so you're trying to find some kind of comfort so that you can sleep, so that you can rest, so that you can live in shalom for at least eight hours before you get up in the morning, right? You've got to go somewhere to find that thing that's so deep within your soul. And so that's the, the needs level. It's, 
it's such a basic desire that you might not even feel it. You, you might not even call it a feeling. It's deeper than a feeling. It's what you were made for. And it's also where the war between heaven and earth most happens. Because the thing you were made for, I mean, every demon is going to vie for that spot. Everyone is going to tell you that you were made for something. You were made for this, you were made for that, and you can get it this way. And so the way that you can imagine it, at least in the circle diagram, is you could almost imagine it like, like the eye. Like Jesus says, you know, um, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if it is dark, then your whole body is dark. So you could imagine your identity this way, that at the very, at the very sort of back of the eye is the needs. And then the middle section is something like the deeds. And then the out, outer section is something like the creeds. And the only way that you can see anything clearly about yourself and about the world is if the three are aligned. It's if both your creeds and your deeds are aligning with what you were made for. That makes sense, right? And so the reason that I spend so much time on deeds on that middle level is because a lot of us have gotten pretty good at talking on the creeds and the needs level. You know, if you give a young like talk or something like that, you'll say, you were made for something so much more just talking on the needs level. And then you'll say, if you believe in this, then you'll be saved, which is talking on the creeds level. But we don't always say what is said in Colossians 3, which is put away all of these specific things. Stop doing them. Because if you just say you believe this and then you go back home and keep doing those things, you will not actually believe the thing that you say you believe. It's impossible. And so again, sorry, just to, to finish this thought, the, with the John 3 passage, the light has come into the world, the people love the darkness because their deeds were evil. You can see all three levels now because, I mean, on the most basic level, do the people want the light? Like, is there anyone who chooses darkness over than light on the most basic level of what you're made for? Of course not. I mean, light means sight. Like, does anyone choose to be blind? No. And so it's the best news ever because on the needs level, it's like the thing that your soul was meant for is here. Who gives that up? Nobody. And then on the surface level, like it's the same. It's like even with Nicodemus, it's like, I can see that you're from God. You know, but what does he say back to Nicodemus? It's like, you must be born again. You have to, you have to actually let this be true of every part of your life because if, if you can only see that you need it and you can only see that you want it, what is in between those needs and wants? At some level, for me, when I think about this, it's it seems intuitive to Jesus is actually what Jesus actually said and did in four gospels. So most of the time when he heals someone, he's not like, great buddy, now believe on the Messiah. Yes. Have a nice day. Yes. Like it's most of the time he actually tells them to not tell people that. And then yes. says, leave your life of sin. Yes. And that's in a sense what like true repentance is, isn't just like you're healed, believe on the Messiah, keep doing what you're doing. There is a, a deeds level that he seems to address with people most of the time when he heals them. And actually, it seems like he cares less about the creeds. <laughs> well, it's, yes, it's not that he doesn't care about Not them, that he doesn't but, care about the creeds, but yes. he sees the danger in putting too much into creeds and having that overshadow the fact that your identity is more than that, right? So he doesn't want Peter to say, you were the Messiah, and then just be like, yay, now you understand everything, because just for him to say that creedal statement doesn't mean he understands. It's, but the cool thing is that it's okay for Peter to say that. Like I said, in Matthew, Jesus says, he doesn't just say, you're wrong, or whatever. He says, on you I will build my church. So he seems to even commend that creed. 
even though Peter is about to get a huge rebuke afterward, he's going to show how much he doesn't understand it. But the point is, it's not like we have to go around and be like, don't be a Christian until you totally understand it. <laughs> it's like, no, like you can say, I accept Jesus into my heart. And then what we say is, okay, come with me. Because, because if you don't have that, okay, come with me, then I accept Jesus into my heart isn't going anywhere. But you, you wouldn't want to say something cynical like, yeah, do you really accept Jesus into your heart? <laughs> no, no, like, it has to start somewhere. It usually starts with, like, your faith has saved you. Now go and stop sinning. Yes. Like, he yes. acknowledges the creed and is like, okay, that's. Yes, exactly. There's that. Exactly. But go and, like, live a life of sin no more. Yes, yes. And so, another example would be, let's say, the porn addicted Christian man. So. You can see how the levels play out in that. So on the surface level, it's go, every time you know, he's going to go to his accountability group and he's going to say, I hate this. I want nothing to do with this. I never want to see anything like this again in my life. Is he telling the truth? Yes, on that level, he is telling the truth. I know because I've seen the tears in people's eyes and I believe them when they say these things over and over again. But I also know that a month from then or the next day or, the, or, or a year from then, or, I mean, the thing will just come back to haunt them a lot of times, Right. And so then what is that? What's going on there? Why is it that you can so believe that you hate something and yet come back to it in a more consistent way than lots of other things in your life? Because some part of you loves it. Some part of you loves that thing and doesn't hate it. And that's what I meant at the beginning when I said that it's possible for you to love something and love the opposite of that thing at the same time because you are an iceberg. And that is the thing that Jesus is trying to sort out. To have the three parts of you, or however many there are, but in, in this case, we'll just we'll sort of use this diagram, but think of it as three parts of you align so that light can come through from the deepest parts of you to the surface. And you could, you know, you could go all the way with the, with the porn-addicted man to the, to the needs level, and you could say, what's driving that? And you could say, I mean, it's probably not just something evil, right? It's, it's probably some longing for intimacy, some longing to be known, some longing to be loved. But the disconnect there in the middle, that, that just kills everything. It just covers up the light, you know. Okay, so I, I'm gonna, I, I, need to, I need to finish up now. Um, so there are many Christian pastors and parents that fear that their children or their congregants will come to them and say, I'm not a Christian anymore. But what is far more likely is that they will find that those children and congregants remain Christians by creed, but lose themselves to addiction, to adultery, to deserting their families, to betrayal, and to suicide. Especially in our time, those are the things that happen more often than simply just saying you're not a Christian. It's people that never stop being Christians with the way that they talk about Christianity and yet lose themselves. And so the world's response to this is to say, this is why Christianity is worthless. You know, what is the percentage of Christians who are divorced compared to the percentage of not? You know, it's like seemingly the same, you know, according to some studies. Maybe that's... Maybe those studies are incorrect, but that would be the, the argument of the world. And my response to this is why Christianity is worthless is to say this is why Christianity is the only hope. Because how else, what other way is there to align 
this iceberg of being, this, this, this war between desires that are within you. Do you, have, do you have some trump card that's going to get us out of this problem? Is there some other way to deal with the chaos inside of us that we hardly even know? Besides to bring it into order under one God who is good, who made the deepest parts of you and meets you on the surface as well. And so my, my answer to that, in part, is what I had you read or listen to in that, in that C.S. Lewis um, essay, which is to begin to worship, to, to remember that what, what worship is, that it is aligning your soul to him. It's not the only answer, but it's part of the answer that he talks about. He even talks about at the end how it's not like we worship perfectly. We're just, it's like we're just tuning our instruments in a way, right, for the day that, that one day we will. And he's talking about the ritual level there. Right? He's talking about how you can sort of dig these paths for the water to come, even though it's a drought. I don't know if you remember the end of that. But it's kind of like, maybe, maybe the water won't come, or maybe it'll trickle every once in a while. But one day it will. That's the story we believe. And so even when the rituals seem empty, if you're digging the path, when they become more full. Or if you listen to the, to the sermon, which we're going to talk about, um, about redeeming ritual, then you see even more how... Um, our lives are just these competing rituals. It's, it's not like you can say, am I going to be a ritualistic person or not? No, it's, it's just your ritual is watching football for five hours on, you know, every Sunday or whatever. Like, you're going to have you, good luck escaping rituals. You already have them. You just aren't very conscious of what they are. And they're making you who you are on a deep level. It's not just that we are loved that makes us who we are. It's also what we love that makes us who we are. And those two things together make us who we are. And we've gotten pretty good at talking about the first part, that we are loved. And we can keep saying it over and over again, and it will always be true. But until we begin to embody that love and to learn what we love and to exchange our lower loves for that one true love, then we, I don't know that we've seen enough of salvation. All right. Okay, we're going to go into um, small groups. Thanks for listening to the VB Fellows podcast. VB Fellows is a faith-based leadership development and apprenticeship program for recent college grads in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Our next deadline for applicants for next year's class is actually this Monday, November 15th. So if you know anyone who is interested, please let them know. They can find out more at vbfellows.com.